full strength beer, if then it was matched with other fluids and food concurrently, which most people are going to do, not many people are going to have one beer and that's it, they're done, you know, and expect that they're going to have recovered from their exercise, but provided that it was then followed up with other fluids, non-alcoholic fluids, and some food, is, is not going to affect them negatively from a hydration perspective. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? I'm bloody exhausted, Steph. <laughs> We've, uh, well, myself and uh, also Chris and Zoya, who work with us at, at Monash Uni, have been in the, uh, the kitchen the last couple of days, cooking up all the food for the sodium replacement study um and yeah still got a little bit more to pack tomorrow but my back is sore my feet are sore i'm glad to be sitting in a chair now because i've been standing on my feet for like 10 or 15 hours for the last two days in a row and uh yeah my my old uh office bound body's not used to it <laughs> it's been and it's so, been yeah, so long I'm, like since you know covid so yeah well, that's it. I mean, we haven't really, you know, until the last few weeks, mm. we haven't really been into the lab, so we haven't been on mm. our feet because of that. And, yeah, mm. exactly right. Yep. Well, that's enough about me, Steph. What have you been up to? Uh, well, today I went with Zoya, um, just finished her PhD um, studies and now is doing research um, work still at Monash. Uh, so we went to Alfred um uh, center to go on the database to um, have a look at the FODMAP content um, of the foods that we use. So these are the, um, um, the the gastroenterology department at Monash Uni, the people that invented the term FODMAPs and run all the courses worldwide on it and do the certification of food products and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yes, yep, mm. exactly. Um, so yeah, so um, went back there uh, to just check um, for the the diets that we've got people on in our in our um, lead in mm. um, for studies, so. yeah, to collaborate of ours for some of our gut research. Yeah, yeah, um, and then in a couple of days' time, I'm going to be in 35 degree heat with someone running for a couple of hours. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> so I had my first one of that last week, and. Um, it, it was fine for me, although the participant, it, it um, towards the end, it, it became a bit more of a struggle, which is understandable, you know, not being heat acclimatised and um, it, it can get tough. So, But they made it through, so that's good. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, very good. So here on the Long Munch, we take a deep dive into those questions that you're asking your training partners and peers so we, we have a, um, a part A um, that involves the researcher or a practitioner, and then we have a part B, which is normally involving an athlete or perhaps even a coach. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and if you want us to answer any of your questions, uh, you can contact us on our social media, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at The Long Munch. 
and to listen to us, we're on all your popular podcasts. Yeah, yep, and certainly we're very keen for people to reach out if there's any questions that they'd like answered, just like Megs has on social media. She got in touch with us. Uh, she was interested in finding out more about nutrition specifically for stage racing and some of the, the things uh, that you need to consider, I guess, when you're thinking about doing consecutive days in a row of racing. So that's a, a topic we already had on our agenda, so we will... Um, get stuck into that and, and get some interesting guests to come on and, and talk about that both uh, a guest expert and also obviously an, an athlete themselves. So that'll be really good. Uh, and another one that we've got coming up in the pipes um, is one that I think people will really enjoy um, is how do I tackle my first ultra distance event? which, um, you know, for a lot of people that might be stepping up, whether it's, you know, from Olympic distance or half Ironman up to Ironman, if you're a triathlete, uh, maybe from running marathons to, to doing some ultra stuff up to 100Ks or 100 milers, uh, or if you're maybe a mountain biker who's done sort of six-hour races and things like that and you're, you're looking to do a, a solo 24-hour race, uh, I think this will be a, a really interesting podcast for that. And we're actually considering at the moment having not just a part A and B, but parts A, B, C and D for that episode to get a whole bunch of different perspectives because, you know, obviously triathlon versus uh, ultra running versus, uh, you know, something like mountain biking or um, sort of ultra distance road cycling as well, mm. which there are some events like that. Uh, it's, it's a very different kettle of fish across those different sports. So we're keen to get all of those different perspectives from, from people who have been there and done that. Yeah, 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 that'll definitely be a good one. Um, for sure, and and for people that have never done stage racing, but yeah, they're wanting to tackle a stage race. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And we also had someone that made a infographic on a rant that you did, Alan. Yes, yes, we had uh, episode ten A was around. You know, should I get a sweat test or do I need a sweat test? Um, and at the start of that, uh, you know, we have our little. Uh, you know, things that irritate us and yep. we sort of don't get me started. Mm -hmm. uh, and I talked about magnesium and a lot of the, uh, I guess, the hype in the, the industry, I suppose, yeah. about magnesium, but how little food you actually need to replace your magnesium losses. And uh, sports dietitian over in, in Texas, in Houston, Brett Singer has actually made a, a nice little infographic um, sort of summarising some of those examples of foods that contain that amount of magnesium. So, um, yeah, it's great to uh, see that going around and we've, we've shared that through our social media channels as well at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Very cool. So anyone else that mm. wants to keep or add, add some infographics after we do a rant, you're more than welcome. We love them. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. it's good education. Um, so we're not going to have a rant as such for this episode. Um, the episode today is tackling the question, can I have a, a beer after, uh, you know, after my session, after my training session, or let's say after a race. Um, and so we thought it's probably good just to highlight you know some points in terms of why we're talking about that particular topic um so we're not you know obviously promoting um alcohol as such yeah absolutely so yeah i mean this is a, a very common question that athletes have um mm. you know 
Some sports, obviously, more than others, have a culture around alcohol use and sometimes abuse, and so we need to be aware of that as well. So, again, you know, we're not condoning people going out and uh, deliberately getting a beer or anything like that, but uh, mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, people have that legitimate question, uh, and there are people that are, you know, responsibly having alcohol. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we just thought it'd be uh, one that would be worth tackling uh, and speaking to to a researcher who has looked at this question in terms of how does alcohol affect or not affect, you know, my recovery. So yes, it is episode eleven A today, um, and our special guest is Associate Professor. Ben Desbro from Griffith University up on the Gold Coast in Queensland. So uh, a lot of you may have heard of Ben. Uh, he His research does get a lot of media attention, uh, as we'll mm-hmm. hear throughout this podcast. He sort of ticks a lot of the boxes for pop science, I guess, in, in a lot of ways. He does a lot of research in caffeine. He does a lot of research in beer and, and alcohol. Um, he's published a paper that actually measured the caffeine content of all the different Nespresso pods. So if you're an mm, Nespresso pod user and you want to know research. the caffeine content, you could actually go and look that up in one of Ben's papers. Um, so he's done a lot of research in, in sort of those sort of areas that do tend to attract a lot of media attention. And I know Ben hasn't done that research specifically to get that attention. Um, we'll, we'll talk to him a little bit about uh, why he sort of got interested in those particular areas uh, as we go through the, the interview today. Uh, but yeah, as part of that research, Ben has looked at the effect of um, beer post-exercise and particularly in one aspect of recovery, which is sort of the rehydration aspect. Um, he's obviously you know, across the, the literature in, in other aspects of recovery as well, and it's probably a good uh, episode to sort of introduce and talk about the different components of, of recovery because we've done a lot of episodes, Steph, looking at uh, what we do before exercise and what we do during exercise, but we haven't really touched on a lot yet uh, what we may or may not be doing after exercise. So I think it's a, mm. a good good place to start and we'll, we'll touch on some of those aspects of, of recovery today. Yep. All right. Well, I think in that case, it is time to get stuck into this podcast. So it is episode 11A. Can I have a beer after my lot big training session with Associate Professor Ben Desbro? Let's get started. Ben Desbro, welcome to The Long Munch. We're really excited to talk to you today because we're talking beer and it's obviously you're an hour behind us because it's still daylight saving at the time of this recording and you're up in Queensland, but it's just ticked over midday. So I think we're allowed to talk alcohol now, aren't we? Well, just, just. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've seen plenty of those t-shirts that it says it's five o'clock. It, you know, it's always five o'clock somewhere. Yeah. Um, so it will be five o'clock somewhere when, when people are listening to this. If it is, we, ho- we hope that they, uh, they they get something from the from the chat today yeah absolutely um but but first of all i mean you obviously work in research now at at griffith university and and teaching obviously as well but you started out your sports nutrition career at the australian institute of sport right back in its heyday in the lead up to the sydney 2000 olympics so i'm just curious what the environment around there was was like back then obviously the ais has changed a fair bit over the years but i mean that was really when that joint was pumping yeah, well, it was a it was a great time to um, to be at the AIS. It was also a, like just a really great time in my life. I was in my late twenties. I'd worked as a, a dietitian for about ten years in a hospital sort of environment. Um, I was always interested in sport and had done an exercise science degree before doing sort of postgraduate dietetics. Um, I had a little sports private practice on the side, um, and 
you know, I got had got to a point in my career where I was sort of I, I needed to do something different by way of just challenging myself. And I applied for a couple of jobs, and one of those was the fellowship at the Institute of Sport, and the other one was for um, uh, as a product rep for Nestle in their sort of me- new medical nutrition um, mm-hmm. wing um, that they were starting up at the time. So I applied for both jobs, and and um, was had the good fortune to be offered both of them at the same time. And I was honest during the interviews; I'd said I'd applied for other jobs, and you know I was looking for a bit of a career shift, and um, I. So I, I, I was up front with, with both of the um, selection panels and I went to my uncle, he's passed away now, but he was a real um, friend, mentor and relative of mine and he was a, a CEO of um, a company and I sort of said, look, these are my two options. I can go and work for Nestle and get pa- paid plenty of money to um, you know, rep their products or I can go to the Institute of Sport and as a sports nutrition fellow at the time, get paid next to nothing. Um, but do something that I was really interested in um, and passionate about, and it was a unique opportunity. And he sort of looked at me and said, "Why are we even having this conversation? It's you know, it's a no-brainer for him to say, look, you're young, go and do something that you get a unique opportunity to go and do. Don't you know the money will be there. It will it will come in time, but the opportunities may not. Um, and so it was a fairly brief, and I felt a uh, fairly um, silly conversation because it just seemed so clear to him. Um, to go in, in the direction that I ultimately took and, and went down um, and, you know, really did, um, you know, change my career. It changed my life. I got married when I was down, you know, I was engaged and said to my fiance, we were living in Brisbane, said, I've got this job. Um, I want to go down to Canberra. Um, you know, we're going to get married halfway through the year. Do you mind if I disappear for six months before we get married? Uh, and uh, look, it was, it was just fantastic. As I said, it was just a great time in my life for establishing where my life was going to go for you know the next 10 15 years and it just happened to be at the time pre-olympics as well but for me personally i didn't really think too much about that i just thought more about the people i was going to work with um, and the fact that i just wanted to take my career in a, in a different direction hmm. and and what was that experience like then having that lead up to the sydney olympics yeah, it was, it was, the place was really a, a buzz at the time. I guess having not worked there before, you just assumed that it was like that all the time and it's very difficult mm. to benchmark against what it was like, you know, um, two or three years before that. Um, Louise um, Burke, who was uh, department head at the time, had not long returned from South Africa. She'd had a sabbatical in South Africa, which was quite um, personally and professionally productive. Um, she she um, got married um, the year that I was in, in, in Canberra um, I, I didn't get an invite to the wedding, which was a little bit, I was a little bit bitter about. I was probably in the lab doing some work for Louise, you know, probably at about four in the morning, but whatever, you know, you don't carry these things with you. Um, um, but, you know, uh, I remember when I arrived in Canberra, um, the first night I, I drove um, from Brisbane. So for those people who don't know sort of the distances, about 15, 1600 kilometres in my little, uh, little Ford hatchback. Um, and I arrived um, and, and stayed the night at Greg Cox's place. He put me up for the first night that I was there. And I, I knew Greg, but not, not fantastically well. I, I'd met him at a, a conference previously, and he'd encouraged me to apply for the fellowship. And he had put a good word in for me, which was quite nice as a fellow Queensland male dietitian. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a great opportunity to go down and, and, and really the people that I went down with at the time, I really only knew Louise and Greg and 
I was really looking forward to working with them and, and, and that, you know, they certainly didn't disappoint. They've disappointed me in other ways, but <laughs> from a professional point of view. No, yeah, obviously. And, and you know, yourself and, and Greg Cox obviously moved back to, to Queensland now since then. Uh, and you've been back at, at um, Griffith Uni, I think it was almost 20 years. Yeah, 2000, February 2002 I started. You know, I'm not sure. I think it's like a, you know, a T-shirt, a 20-year T-shirt or something they give you. Yeah. I, got a little, I got a little medal for 15 years, yeah, um, but it wasn't gold. So I'm not sure what that means. I made well, you just got to move up each, each time you, you get bigger and better. Well, maybe. Maybe. We'll see. I, I, they haven't sort of said, what do you want for your 20th? I haven't received that email yet, so I'm not sure. Yeah. And when you went across to the Gold Coast at Griffith Uni, where you are now, obviously you, you're moving into a sort of a teaching and, and research role. A lot of the people, I guess, that come through the AIS tend to to go in more down the sort of, you know, elite or professional sport path. But you went down the, the research path. Was there a particular reason for that? Was it an area that you had a certain interest in or was it just the jobs that were available at the time? Um, well, I'm, immediately after leaving the AIS, it's a fellowship, so um, unless they had a continuing appointment, your fellowship ended and the, the next fellow came on. I, I went back um, to my um, employment at the Wesley Hospital in Brisbane, um, but the one thing that the AIS experience didn't give me was um, a formal academic qualification. I got, a, um, I got a, a great experience. I got sort of world-leading exposure to research in sports nutrition, and I fell in love with it. I fell in love... I fell in love with the conversations that I had with the researchers in terms of, um, you know, you discuss a paper and, and, and you, you never took the author's conclusion. Sometimes you agreed with the author um, in terms of their conclusion, but you just never took it at face value. It was always a deeper understanding and a deeper critique of what was written on the page than, than just reading the abstract. And, and I guess, you know, broadly speaking, prior to the AIS experience, I was an abstract guy, you know, like... My, my knowledge wasn't that deep and, and I didn't have the understanding. And then, as I said, I got exposed to Louise and Greg and a real sort of culture of learning mm. in the physiology department. You know, guys like, um, you know, Alan Hahn. Um, um, you know, we, we had uh, David Pine, you know, um, uh, you know, um, you know and, and you're just sort of surrounded by people who, who wanted to learn more. And you're also generating this new information and, and being the first to, to know that, um, you know, was really, um, it, it sort of brought out my inner geek, I suppose. I just thought, well, this is, I want to know more. And it's really nice if you not only know more, but you have something that other people might be interested in. So it's like a gift that you can generate for yourself. And just as my dad would put, you know, um, a building together by way of the electrical circuitry, for me, the gift that I could give was, to, to answer a question and, and to share the answer and to think about, well, can I answer this question any better if I, if, if I you know, work with this person or use this piece of equipment or, or look at what people's behaviour is in the community and try and answer interesting or relevant questions that can easily translate. And that, I got exposed to research through university, but I never really was a sort of researcher that was interested in, you know, a particular enzymes activity and whether you could increase it or decrease it, or, um, you know, a, a, a reductionist sort of metabolite research. I, un I understood the importance of that sort of fundamental research, and it's great to have um, the mechanisms that underpin um, 
what it is that you're trying to understand. But I was always so much more interested in the human aspect and the human sort of behavioral whole body type responses more so than sort of digging into to one element of, 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 you know, one component of a cell or, um, you know, a genetic signal or, um, you know, a, you know, a protein regulation marker. Yeah. Fair enough. And, and I mean, in terms of the, the research, I mean, we're going to talk about, you know, one particular topic today, but I guess probably the, the two topics that you're probably best known for in terms of research are around caffeine and around beer or alcohol. Um, there's a bit of a theme going there, Ben. What, what sort of got you interested in those two topics? Is it just sort of coincidental or is it a bit of a uh, bit of me search? Uh, well, certainly, um, I wouldn't describe it as me search because I don't drink very much. And when I started doing research on caffeine, I never drank coffee either. <laughs> um, so it, it, again, it sort of came back to having the opportunity to answer interesting questions. I was very fortunate when I was at the AIS, we did a study looking at pre and um, uh, throughout exercise doses of caffeine. Um, so it's a study, uh, Greg Cox is the first author, it was published in the Journal of Applied Physiology in 2002, I think, or maybe 2000, um, where, we, where we basically looked at six milligrams per kilogram dose of caffeine, um, either given one hour before exercise or a measured um, dose, one milligram given six times throughout an endurance exercise task. Um, and we also threw in a, a, a cola trial into that study just to see or dispute the fact that a little bit of cola given towards the end of exercise would improve exercise performance. Um, and sort of long story short was that, you know, any, any of the forms of caffeine, either the pure caffeine given before or the, the caffeine given during or the, or the cola given right at the end uh, seemed to have a, an ergogenic um, response. Um, that um, study, which we conducted the data collection in 1999, was a sort of um, a forerunner to um, a lot more caffeine research. Uh, and the reason that we, that I embarked on that was because it, it presented an opportunity um, at the time uh, the Australian rugby union captain was George Gregan. And he was seen um, before a test match um, taking some tablets in a, in a change room. And it made sort of national um, headlines as a sporting um, disgrace story that someone could, could be seen to be, um, you know, taking a a performance-enhancing supplement in a tablet form before they went out and competed. And, and it was uh, later found out that it was caffeine and that, you know, it started this very open um, media political debate about what was and what wasn't appropriate by way of, um, you know, legalised doping in sport. And the, the, the long story short of that was that any Australian Sports Institute or Academy was immediately told by the government you're no longer doing caffeine research um, because they didn't want the political connection to sports doping um, associated, um, you know, having any association with Australian sport or, or publicly funded money. And, and at that stage, I'd, I'd moved to um, Griffith. Um, we'd done some work in caffeine. I was familiar with the literature. I was familiar with where the evidence was at. Um, it had become a legalised substance. It was no longer on the wider prohibited substances list. So it really just opened up an opportunity to explore an area that I was interested in. And I also knew we were in the, a great position being at a university. You can do what you like, really, um, provided you've got ethics approval to, to, to move into that area. So, um, you know, it, it was more opportunistic than anything else from mm. that perspective. 
yeah. research is hard to do. So if you can find uh, if you can find a, 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 a an area like that which opens up for you, um, then then you, you're mad not to take it. Yep, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So topic for today is can I have a beer after my session, my training session, um, or even race? Uh, so beer, as we know, can be highly sought after or perhaps even shied away from after training, depending on, on the culture of the sport, the time of day and the level of the athlete. So if we strip away the cultural aspect um, for a minute and think about the science, what are the potential concerns with alcohol um, in the post-exercise period? Yeah, well, I think, and that's what we've tried to do with our research is, is think about beer in that, in that sense. Um, uh, we often describe, um, I guess, sports nutrition in terms of recovery according to the sort of four R's, rehydration, uh, restoration of, of, of fuel, primarily muscle glycogen, uh, repair of um, skeletal muscle damage. And the last R, which... Um, to me, is often overlooked is uh, relaxation. <laughs> so, you know, what what does someone do to relax and unwind? And I I, I treat each of the R's with equal respect. Um, and so, when you consider beer, uh, it has the potential to influence every R. Uh, there's not too many, um, you know, post-exercise fluids that that have that potential, but beer is one of them. Yep. Yep. Um... I think we also want to add in five R's now to recovery nutrition after um, Isabella Russell's uh, Russo's um, research. So we want to add in another one with regulate for the um, for the gut barrier. Okay. Um, so yeah. so we're just going to keep adding to the R's. <laughs> well, if you get if you get seven R's and a C, apparently, then it becomes a pirate. Oh. So you get... <laughs> nice, nice. Well, that, that, that's the other way around, unfortunately. <laughs> Seven C's and an R, <laughs> but you know we, we yeah we've got we've got we've got too many R's. <laughs> we we'll be we'll be up to fifteen yeah. soon. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not creative enough to come up with another R. I just look yep. at the ones we've got and go, okay, well, how does this relate to the one? So if it's five now, I can talk to you about that yeah. one as well because we've done some work looking at changing um, gut microbiota and, and alcohol as yep. well. So I'll have a crack at the yep. fifth R, but that'll be yep. off the cuff. Yep. All right. Cool. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I guess have these, um, concerns been researched much in scenarios that are actually relevant to athletes? Um, so has there been much, much research in this area? Yeah, well, um, some yes and some no, if we look mm -hmm. at the R's. Um, so the way I would describe, um, uh, each of them in terms of the level of evidence, um, and I, I guess I'm, I'm doing this reflecting on. Um, beer post-exercise as opposed to your specific question because I, I want to come to your specific question in a minute because I think there's some key words in in, in the question which, which we'll elaborate in more detail to try and answer that. So let's just look at, at beer in the post-exercise um, recovery area. So if we look at it from a, a, a rehydration perspective, that's probably the one area of alcohol or beer-related research which has had um, the most um, studies done on it. Now, not all of those studies are great. Um, some of those studies have been done by me. And, and so that's why I'm quite happy to sort of criticize some of the work that we've done or understand the limitations of the work that we've done. 
because you know you learn and and you develop and and my career has um, included some of that development which has included beer related research so I'll talk I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute but um, in terms of repair so uh, muscle um, muscle recovery um, there's there's a reasonable amount of work that's been done on on functional recovery so can you do things like um, you know maintain a counter movement jump or um, leg pain markers or you know this sort of functional muscle strength functional um, or, or symptomatic recovery of, of, of muscle soreness uh, this sort of work there's there's only one study that I'm aware of that's um, been done that's directly looked at muscle protein synthetic response with alcohol um, still um, so there's probably some more work to be done in that space um, in terms of um, uh, uh, restoration of, of muscle fuel again there's there's hardly any research in this area um, and that's I think primarily come about because the first study and the and, and the, really the only study that I'm aware of is a study that Louise did just before I arrived in Canberra um, and and they looked at um, a reasonably large dose of alcohol um, on muscle glycogen resynthesis and and there wasn't a direct effect of the alcohol on muscle glycogen resynthesis um, what what they showed was that if it replaced or displaced carbohydrate the alcohol that is then then you saw a reduced um, muscle glycogen synthetic response but it was more to do with the presence of the carbohydrate uh, than, than the pre, than the uh, an, an attenuation that was caused by the alcohol per se yeah. if that makes sense um, and then and, and then there's been absolutely nothing on relaxation Although there's been a lot of anecdotal, um, uh, you know, mm -hmm. pseudoscience going on there. I was going to say, yeah, there's, there's plenty of that. <laughs> so so we, we try and answer questions that we don't know or what the answer is going to be before we start the experiment. It's not an experiment if you already know what you're going to find out. And beer uh, often makes people relax, sometimes too much. And, you know, some of the um, literature that or some of the education material that I often like to present um, when I'm dealing with athletes is, you know, you have this... Uh, alcohol consumption, where you have a pleasure zone, um, and then you then you go into what we call a marginal zone, and then you enter the zone of regret. And so, um, you know, I, I try and, and look at alcohol in those three sort of basic um, phases. Um, you know, in terms of what I would recommend, and we and we like the relaxation element to be in that uh, in the pleasure zone. We don't want to go up into the marginal zone, and we certainly don't want to enter the mm -hmm. zone of regret, because I think. A lot of your R's will start to be compromised when you enter the zone of regret. That's maybe another R for you. <laughs> Getting closer to the seven. It's coming along quickly here. <laughs> we'll get to seven by the end of this. By the end well, of maybe the it's just the, the flip side of the relaxation one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it probably is worth two R's, isn't it? Because you're like, ah. Ah. <laughs> I like you've it. done that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can get a few extra R's. <laughs> that's so nice. Okay, so um, do you want to? Um, uh, so, where do you want to take this? Do you want to talk fluid first of all? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, let's go back to your question. Um, your question is, can I have a beer mm -hmm. post exercise? Yeah. Um, and so, it's the A that I wanted to point out as being the <laughs> critical element in this. Um, mm -hmm. Now, we started to look at um, our our first alcohol studies were all in rehydration. And um, they were born from understanding or reading uh, Ron Morn's original studies from sort of the mid-1990s where uh, he looked at different doses of alcohol 
using a non-alcoholic beer base and basically demonstrated in a very, very small subject pool um, that 0, 1 and 2% alcohol by volume didn't cause greater fluid loss. Um, but when a beverage went up to 4% alcohol, which is obviously a bit more in keeping with full strength beer, you saw um, greater fluid excretion, so poorer fluid retention, um, largely driven by alcohol's effect on, um, you know, its diuretic effect on um, AVP, so some of, the, some of the hormones that are associated with fluid regulation. Um, so, as I said, it was a very small study, um, only had, it had well under 10 participants, and um, we had been doing some work looking at um, different rehydration beverages, namely milks or you know, milk-based supplements or uh, soy milks to see how much fluid retention you got from different, different products. Um, and in order to do those studies, you need to control lots of things. You need people to come into your laboratory fasted. You need them to lose a certain percentage of their body weight. You then prescribe a fluid. Uh, then you sit around in the lab for three to four hours afterwards, and every hour they pee into a bottle. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe you take some blood off them, but they sit around and you know twiddle their thumbs, basically. Um, and the reason that um, it's all so controlled uh, is so we can you know tease out the effect of the different profiles of, of beverages. So um, we, we started to use that method. It was well established in the scientific literature, and we wanted to get sort of uh, the work published. So we started to play around with beer um, because um, no one had really um, looked at um, you know, commercial beer uh, percentages and they, they go up above 4% and, and no one uh, had, had used a, a commercial product. Um, and, and as I said, this, the subjects had relatively small participant numbers. So we, we thought we could do a little bit better job by looking at um, uh, increasing the participant pool size, um, using commercial products, and also look at the combination of changes in alcohol and changes in electrolytes, because we knew that um, from the literature on sodium that you could get a greater fluid retention um, based on the sodium concentration of the beverage. So we played around with um, commercial beverages, um, choosing some low alcohol beers, some, some regular beers, and, and, and adding or not adding um, some additional sodium to those beers. Um, so we, we did a couple of studies in that area, um, and uh, you know we, they were sort of tightly controlled studies. But one of the reasons that I, I was really interested in beer or, or beer from a rehydration perspective was for exactly the reason, one of the reasons that we control our, in our studies, that is that beer can be consumed in large volumes. And, and whenever we conducted these studies, that would be the first thing that we would have to cap. Um, you need to drink the same volume of the different fluids that you're providing because the volume consumed is obviously going to have a, a large effect on how much fluid is potentially retained. Um, and so when you watch human behaviour, uh, I, I walk a fine line between stalking and observing. <laughs> and so when I observe human behaviour, um, I see a lot of people drinking large volumes of beer. Um, they enjoy it. Uh, it's highly accessible. It's in lots of places. Um, and the vessels in which it's often consumed are also quite large, which you know encourages people to, to drink large volumes. Um, it, it also has a sort of taste or flavour profile that people don't seem to get sick of. Um, now, it could be that they're getting more and more intoxicated and therefore less um, sensitive to what they stick in their, their mouth. But um, nonetheless, even um, lower alcohol beers 
people don't tend to stop drinking because of an element of flavor fatigue. So for me, it was a sort of natural product to, to look at. Um, and to get back to the sort of study results or what we know about hydration from, from beer is that, um, it, you know, it probably reflects what Ron Morn discovered in the 19, sort of mid-1990s. That is, you know, once you go sort of above 4% alcohol by volume, you do get that diuretic effect. Um, but, but, but less than that, um, the diuretic effect of alcohol is actually reasonably weak and it can be moderated by adding, in our case, sodium, but quite possibly other um, constituents as well, as well, which change the, um, the fluid retention capacity of, of, of the fluid as it comes in. But beer itself is, um, you know, reasonably, um, uh, you know, um, sort of its, it's, it's solute mix is, is, is reasonably good for sort of fluid retention. It's the alcohol that's the problem. Yeah, and I guess that's what, you know, people talk about breaking the seal when you have a few drinks, and that's exactly that effect, isn't it, that you um, you suddenly need to pee because you're not, uh, you've, you've switched off that signal that tells you to retain water in the body, and so you end up urinating a lot of very dilute urine. Correct, yeah. So if you can avoid, um, if you can avoid that suppression, um, well, then, then you're actually in a situation where, um, from a social perspective, you may actually drink quite a lot of fluid, and and depending on on what you're eating and and other things, you you may be able to retain a, a reasonable amount of that as well. Now we've gone on in from a hydration perspective to do a whole um, range of other studies, which have now mostly focused on ad libitum consumption with fluids and food. Now again, there's still structured studies, and there's some limitations to what we're doing. But we're, we're trying to shift away from this design where we, where we tightly control everything. Because the reality is, you know, in our beer studies, for instance, and I was a participant as well as a researcher, now if, if you're on a, on a heavy alcohol trial, you come in the morning at seven o'clock, you have next to nothing for breakfast, a very small amount of sort of solid food, next to no fluid, because we don't want to alter your fluid balance too much. You lose two percent of your body weight, then you drink three percent of your body weight in in a heavy beer over one hour, and then you sit around for four hours. Now I, I don't know about your lifestyle, but that's somewhat different from my usual behaviour. Um, and I remember my wife picking me up from one of the trials at about three o'clock in the afternoon with a raging hangover that I had, and um, and we had to go and pick my girls up from school, and my. I, distinctly remember my wife looking over to me and saying, don't you dare get out of the car. Um, <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's not normalised behaviour to be um, sort of staggering around a, a primary school at three in the afternoon um, drunk. And you can't, you know, the claim to say, well, I'm doing it for science uh, doesn't really cut it. Not, not the most believable, <laughs> even though so, it is true. So, yeah, uh, I guess from a, a hydration perspective, I've sort of moderated um, my my uh, view um, so that from a, a to answer your question is a beer likely to have a negative impact on your hydration status the answer would be no and that doesn't matter whether it's full strength beer or light beer well even if it was full strength beer um, you know you, 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 your total alcohol dose is going to be relatively small and in our studies we're giving large volumes of full strength beer so the total alcohol dose that you're getting is relatively large, 
and you are seeing an effect on hydration, I wouldn't describe it as a huge effect, but you are, you are able to tease it out when you set it up to be uh, very, um, I guess, a considerable difference in terms of the amount of alcohol that comes in over a relatively short period of time. So one beer, even if it was full strength beer, if then it was matched with other fluids and food concurrently, which most people are going to do, not many people are going to have one beer and that's it, they're done, um, you know, and expect that they're going to have recovered from their exercise. But provided that it was then followed up with, you know, uh, 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 other fluids, non-alcoholic mm. fluids, and some food is, is not going to affect them negatively from a hydration perspective. The study hasn't been done, but... You, you can draw uh, enough conclusions from the work that's been done to suggest, you know, that you'd be pretty confident with that. Yeah. And so I guess from that perspective, then the only negative consequence of maybe having a beer is simply if it then means that you're not, for, for whatever reason, you're not then having the other things that you might want to from a recovery perspective in terms of enough carbohydrate or enough protein or something like that. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, and, and that's harps back to the work that, um, you know, from that study that Louise did in the late 90s as well, which, you know, that's where the harm's done, right? It's, it's not necessarily the one beer. It's, it's what the one beer is displacing and the potential impact of that. And so for me, it comes back to, am I having a beer as part of an otherwise structured recovery program, uh, which is being considered? And if, if that's the case, I've got no problem. Um, if it's one beer and then I'm going to go to sleep, and you know, and, and and that's the extent of my sort of nutrition recovery plan. Well, maybe um, you could do a little better than that. Mm. Yep. So the potential issue then may come more so if you uh, take a leaf out of the the Victorian Premier's book and get on the beers. Well, it's amazing um, what you can become known for. Uh, <laughs> um, obviously, it's it's been turned into a song. Um, the song's um, been re well received. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I guess uh, there's the, the challenge when you work in this space is always about determining uh, what is, you know, what is a low, when people use relative terms, getting on the beers, what, is, what, is that, what does that actually mean? It doesn't, it doesn't quantify or provide any advice as, as to what that actually means. For me, getting on the beers personally, well, that'd be two beers because I don't drink very much. Mm. I'd be on the beers at that point. Now, some people would, would be um, heading to the, to the bottle shop after two beers thinking, well, I haven't even started, right? Like, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a resupply here because um, I've run out of what I've got. So um, I, I guess this is the, the challenge also with applying what we know from science to the alcohol area because science has uh, or, or describes, you know, moderate alcohol consumption or low alcohol consumption in a certain range. And... And from a personal perspective, I don't necessarily align with those ranges. So it might say a, a moderate alcohol consumption is one gram per kilo body weight of alcohol. So for me, that's, you know, eight to nine standard drinks. Now, if I was to have eight to nine standard drinks in a relatively short period of time, I would not describe that as moderate alcohol consumption. I would describe that as my biggest night of the year. <laughs> um, and, and so there, there's a... You know, whereas in the low alcohol science, it's zero, usually about 0 0.5 grams per kilo body weight, which, as I said, for me, is still four, four and a half standard drinks. Mm. That's still a big night mm. for me. Yeah. Um, and so I think 
this is where we, we need to understand what is the science saying and what, it, what is my behavior or the behavior of the athletes that I'm working with likely to be. Now, I've worked uh, with um, cricketers and, and I've been to their houses when we've been doing cooking nights and you might just open up the fridge and do a quick check before you go out to the shop you know, to, to, to buy the ingredients for your cooking night and you open it up and you think, well, oh, there's got to be a couple of ingredients here. I'll save myself some money. And, and yeah, there's the only thing that's sort of green and leafy is the, you know, the, the BB label. You know, it's a plant-based um, beverage, but uh, there's absolutely nothing other than beer in the fridge. And so their moderate alcohol consumption is probably more aligned mm. to what um, science is saying is moderate alcohol consumption. So I think the, these subtleties in terms of understanding what the science and how the science defines things relative to the advice that you provide is, is important. Yep. And I think if you go back to YouTube and, and look at Dan Andrews, get on the beers, I think he describes in detail there that everyone at the party had a case of beers. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, well, so that, getting on the beers that is, in that case was a case per person. Well, that is that is on the beers. It uh, is, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. right. Um, another thing you just mentioned in there a little bit earlier, Ben, um, something that, that you guys have done in, in some of your research is play around with adding sodium to beers. Um, now, we had a conversation around uh, hydration with Dr. Lewis James back in episode 3A of this podcast, and we actually asked him what was his favourite post-exercise beverage, and beer was the response, and we asked him, being a hydration researcher, whether he would add electrolytes to his beer as per your research, and he said, quote, I would never ruin my beer by adding electrolytes. I would probably tend to agree um, from the point of view that um, obviously, we can we can bring in um, you know sodium, which is the main um, electrolyte that we, we've um, manipulated, and obviously has a significant influence on fluid restoration. It's far better to eat it than to drink it. And so, if I'm going to have a beer after exercise, then I'm looking for the tastiest beer that I can um, wrap my tongue around. And I'm guessing from your trials, that wasn't the one that you added sodium to. Well, you, well, you can add some sodium to beer. But it doesn't take too long before you'll then need to mask the sodium content with another component of whatever the flavour of beer is that you've you, you've got. Now there are some higher sodium beers on the market which don't necessarily market themselves as being you know electrolyte beers or anything, um, uh, but they have sort of strong counter flavours as well. So the carbohydrate content may may be moderated, but obviously there's a whole range of uh, flavanols in um, uh, in beer that you can potentially um, exploit being plant-based to moderate the flavour and then there's other infusions that people sort of stick in. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm ultimately a, 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 a dietitian with ultra-strong taste buds and so I will always moderate my behaviour based on what I think is, is flavoursome and, 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 again, reflect on, uh, well, if I can bring that nutrient in through another tasty uh, way, I'll, I'll do that. Now, it obviously comes back to what you've got available to you. You know, if you've got nothing but fluid available to you, then having some electrolyte replacement in your fluid is is um, is a great thing to have. But if you've got free choice and, you know, in your, your ultimate sort of scenario, uh, then I'd probably tend to agree, agree with Lewis. And now you've got that you sort of permanently recorded. You can play that. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and if anyone is tempted to get a teaspoon of salt or electrolyte mix and add it to their beer, can you describe what's going to happen? 
Well, if you get a whole uh, if you get a whole tablespoon, you're going to end up with most of the beer over your table <laughs> um, because uh, it's actually a, a reasonably sort of violent reaction as far as sort of a foodborne <laughs> reaction goes. Um, you know, if you if you uh, if you want to see a large amount of uh, foam produced very quickly, it's it's not a bad sort of party 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 trick. Um, which I didn't realise at the time until the first time we tried it, and we thought, "Ooh, that was unexpected." <laughs> so by the time we we sorted the towels out and uh, cleaned the floor up, we were a little bit uh, a little bit more selective with how we added the sodium um, to, to to the beers in our study. And you know, we've we've done um, beer, um, we've 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 brought beer up to about fifty millimoles per liter of sodium. That's that's as much as I've been able to sort of tolerate and, and drink. Um, you know, to the sort of, you know, two litre, two and a half litre amounts, which we force our participants to do in those very sort of structured trials. Um, as I said, we don't do that anymore, um, those sorts of trials anymore, but um, that's what we were sort of looking at originally. So to try and find a, a concentration of sodium that we thought was going to be palatable enough. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's where we sort of cut out. Uh, that was our upper limit. Yep. And just to put that into perspective, that's you know, a bit more than double what you get in like your standard Gatorade or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, so in terms of um, the sodium mix, as you said, you know, you can probably get that from food. So it's not something that people need to be overly concerned about. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about the sort of the muscle function and recovery stuff. Do you want to talk a bit, and you mentioned there was sort of one study on that and, and a few around sort of counter-movement jumps and things like that. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that uh, and alcohol? Sure, sure. Um, well, the, the one study that's um, looked at muscle protein synthetic responses is, is, is actually um, an Australian study. It's by Evelyn Parr and a group in, in Melbourne. Um, and it's 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 a it's a lovely uh, study um, in that um, uh, it was very sort of tightly um, controlled and it had a alcohol um, trial um, and an alcohol plus protein um, component to try and um, have a look at you know maximizing sort of skeletal muscle synthetic response. They used um, a fairly large dose of alcohol um, for most of the participants. Uh, it was around sort of 10 to 12, I think, standard drinks um, after um, uh, an exercise, a resistance exercise task. Um, and they went on to uh, basically demonstrate that there was a, an attenuation on the uh, muscle protein synthetic response when that, um, that large acute dose of alcohol was provided. Um, and that was irrespective of whether there was some additional sort of protein present that may have, um, you know, encouraged uh, muscle protein synthetic response. Um, so that, that's the one study that we have in the literature on muscle protein synthetic response. But we have a number of studies that have looked at sort of functional um, recovery. Um, probably the, the, the best or, or one of the um, sort of most prolific authors is a guy called Matt Barnes. And Matt is uh, from Massey University in New Zealand. And Matt's done a whole um, series of studies looking at alcohol and muscle functional recovery. Um, and, and his studies are really great because uh, he's done some stuff that's been very sort of um, focused on muscle pain and after eccentric type exercise. But he's also done a bunch of work looking at um, simulated sort of rugby and rugby, uh, rugby type matches um, and actual rugby um, union games as well. Um, and, the, and Matt's, a lot of Matt's work has been in that sort of one gram per kilo 
uh, range again. Um, and when you're dealing with sort of rugby athletes, again, you're in this sort of 10 to 15 standard drinks um, range. Um, and, and in those ranges, what you tend to see is more um, consistent responses where you see things like counter movement, jump recovery um, after damaging exercise recover more slowly within sort of four, you know, 24 to, to 48 hours. Um, and so, and muscle soreness measures and things like that sort of remain a little bit longer. Um, Matt's also done some work um, on lower alcohol intakes at, at that 0.5 grams per kilo body weight. And in that range, and not just Matt's work, but other work that's been done in the area, has um, not been able to as consistently demonstrate the effects you see at that sort of one gram per kilo body mass amount. So again, reflecting on your question, is one is a beer after exercise, if your exercise has caused muscle damage, likely to impair your recovery? I would say not to any detectable um, me measure that we have at the moment. Um, I, would I, would suggest, I would suggest if you, if you embarked on a study where you were going to the expense of measuring mus muscle synthetic response, and you gave people one beer after exercise and you're expecting to see an effect, I think you're going to be disappointed. Yep. Uh, and it sounds like from, from what you're saying, possibly even you know two or three standard drinks is unlikely to have any substantial effect either or one that we can Correct. measure. Correct. Yeah. Um, the, the interesting thing or one of the things that I often um, provide as an example with Matt's work is he's done a couple of studies that almost the, the methods are in, entirely the same. So he's got this... Um, eccentric exercise-induced muscle damage model um, where he then, after he induces the eccentric muscle damage, he then gives an intervention and, and, and he's done interventions that have been alcohol interventions, but he's also done interventions that have potentially enhanced recovery. So one of the um, studies that they've done um, has looked at um, like blueberry consumption, you know, high in antioxidants and potential sort of, you know, other agents. And the interesting thing is when you, when you have a look at those papers and they're done by the same author using the same method, um, if you compare um, the, the, the study that looks at low dose of alcohol and directly compare that with the blueberry paper, um, the blueberry paper has about five or six times the number of citations that the low dose alcohol paper has. Like it's, it's not even close. So the science that's, that we know about blueberry consumption after muscle damage is, 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 is technically occurring at five times the rate that we're understanding what a low dose of alcohol might do. And, and to me, I sort of I see that as somewhat counterintuitive because I'm seeing a lot more people drinking low amounts of alcohol after sport than I am seeing them popping the blueberries. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's just the way sort of the science evolves. And I, I do find it quite humorous. When, when I think about it, you sort of think, hmm, I don't think I've ever seen anyone popping a couple of blueberries after an exercise task. No, I can't see the punnets being handed around or anything like that. <laughs> I mean, maybe, uh, maybe I'd like to see the punnets handed around, but I'm, but I'm not seeing it handed around. And I would be weird if I was the guy handing the punnets <laughs> around. And so, and so I sort of think, well, you know, as a, as a scientist... We, we do uh, have a responsibility to answer questions that are relevant to the way we behave, right? Mm. So to me, not having many studies in that low-dose alcohol area is, is, is a crying shame. Uh, it presents an opportunity for research, but it's, it's still disappointing that we see um, far more research done on, 
on unusual behaviors. And okay, it might enhance recovery and it might be a product that you can then demonstrate and, and sell as being you know, a commercially viable outcome. But uh, you know, I th- think there, there's always a place for looking at what people are doing and trying to better understand the implications of that behavior. Mm. Okay. So just to sort of bring all this together to a bit of a close, I guess, from a recovery point of view, both in terms of rehydration uh, and in terms of you know, repair of muscle damage and that sort of thing and adaptation, to training, I guess the yeah, coming back to that question, can I have a beer after training? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. That's not a problem, whether it's heavy or light beer. Uh, two or three standard drinks. I guess we don't have perfect science on that, but I guess what we do have suggested again, it may not be an issue. Uh, but if you're really getting on the beers um, and having you know multiple multiple beers, particularly full strength, then that's I guess where people may run into a bit of trouble. Is that pretty fair summary? Do you think? I think that's an excellent summary. I can see why you're 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 doing podcasts and I'm not. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to hand over to Steph very quickly for our bonus round, and then we'll leave you to get back to it. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Um, so, for our listeners to get to know a bit more about you, Ben. Um, do you have a particular sporting background yourself? Um, and what do you do for exercise these days? I know chatting to you before, it seems like you may ride your bike a bit. Yeah, well, as a young as a young person, I was completely addicted to football, yeah. soccer. Um, my mum's from Liverpool in the UK. And so um, when I was five, she sort of said, do you want to um, go and play soccer at the local soccer club? Like not in, you know, it was always in Australia. And I said, yes. And then from, from, from um, six, through till about well, my my mid to late forties now. I've always yeah. loved soccer, um, and I played um, I played right through um, my adolescence. I had a, I had a, um, a bad injury on my face playing soccer when I was seventeen. I lost a, a number of teeth and and fractured a, a, a bone in the, the front of my face after a sort of head clash with a with yeah. another player, and then soon after that, I I ended up having a series of knee reconstructions. And so um, I needed to find a, a straight line sport that, that didn't involve bash, potentially yeah. bashing your head against something. <laughs> so I, I found cycling yep. for a while. Um, and, and I had a, a good friend who, who went to a, a couple of Olympics for triathlon. So I did a, a few triathlons. Um, and, you know, I mixed with people like Greg Cox, I mentioned earlier, and Greg's um, an endurance athlete. And we were doing a lot of endurance athlete uh, type studies and so I, I also wanted to understand what that was like from a an athlete's perspective I wanted to know what it was like to do an Ironman so I did an Ironman um, and and um, you know what what that experience is like so when you know someone says to you well you just practice what you do in competition in training and I'm like well it's bollocks like you know the, I don't go out and do an Ironman in training um, <laughs> well the only way I'm going to learn about you know, how I'm going to respond to that environment is to do an Ironman, record what I do, and then do another one and see whether the changes that I do have an effect. Because it's, it's, it's not as if you have those sorts of experiences in your training. You can, you can garner a little bit, but it's not the same, right? And so I, was, I, I got into endurance sports for a while and still really, um, you know, love endur- endurance sports. Uh, nowadays, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to yep. golf. <laughs> it's a, I, maybe it's a transition. I've always played golf but it was more a sort of social thing. And I've got a, I've got a, 
a goal. My there was a question yeah. here about bucket list, a, a yep. bucket list thing. I've always wanted to break eighty, you know, playing uh, golf, yep. and I haven't done it. I've, I've yep. hit eighty, um, and I, and I'm, I hit regularly in the eighties, but I cannot break eighty. So I'm, I'm, I'm. Yeah, it's a barrier. It's like you know when you've got a child that walks, and they take their first step, and it's like you've known as their parent for some time that they were yep. capable of taking that first step, but they're not, they don't know it yet. And then they ultimately take their first step, but the time between when they take their first step and when they take the next hundred steps is usually like mm -hmm. three yep. days. Because you know they break the they break we were talking about breaking the mm. signal earlier. Well, it's, you know, it's a bit the same. Like you, that they 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 take the step and then they realize they can do it and then they build confidence and then the next one's come in a hurry. I'm hoping breaking 80 is exactly the same for me. <laughs> that I'll do it once and then I'll then I'll never hit another 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 round of golf in the 80s. I'll just be in the 70s because I'll realize how to do it. Positive it's like thinking. the four minute mile. Yeah. Yeah. Well that's 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 what I'm working on. But you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, and so was either Brisbane or Gold Coast home for you growing up? Yeah, I, I grew up in Brisbane, on the south side yeah. of Brisbane. Um, I was fortunate to live um, on five acres. So um, sport and space were aplenty. My dad, he was a tradesman, he's an electrician. Um, and he used to drag me to uh, plenty of job sites. And being the second boy, uh, I got an older brother, I was the apprentice's apprentice. So, you know, if you needed a, a tool from the back of the car and it was a boring tool like a screwdriver, then I was the bloke getting that. If it was a drill, my older brother would, would be told to get that from the car. Um, yep. And what I learned from that was that I really looked forward to cleaning the job up at the end of the day. I was pretty tardy during the day, but as soon as Dad said, oh, we're done for the day, we need to pack the car up, I was like lightning. Um, and, and I guess... It taught me a couple of things. One, that you know, some brilliant people who, you know, who don't have university qualifications who are extraordinarily intelligent, hardworking, um, and, and you know, their problem-solving ability is you know, really impressive. Uh, and the other thing it taught me was that I, I couldn't survive being a tradie. Um, <laughs> and so I needed to do and apply myself somewhere else. Otherwise, I was going to find myself doing a job that maybe I wasn't sort of well-suited to and I was going to find that very difficult. So that was a that was a great learning experience. And I, I think my dad knew. Uh, he knew that I wasn't cut out for the work. So he kept he kept well he kept telling me to come to the to, to jobs with him um, because it, it just reinforced the fact that sort sort your shit out, mate. Like you know you've got to <laughs> you've got to got to get your life in order. So yeah. he he's been one of my um, my great supporters, my dad. And I think um, he, he knew. Uh, it was a sort of real shaping activity. So that's where I grew up and did all, most of my education there um, and, yep. and worked in Brisbane, as I said, before I moved to Canberra. Canberra was yep. my first sort of big move away from, from home, if you like. Mm. Favourite um, post-exercise beverage? Um, I, well, I, I really, I'm, I'm, I love milk. I, mm. You know, I, I like mm -hmm. um, milk from a beverage. I like the taste of it. Yeah. Um, and as a dietitian, I've grown to love it just from its nutritional profile. Um, you know, I used to see a lot of very unwell people in hospitals, but if they were able to maintain a little, you know, a, a reasonable milk consumption because of the profile, you'd often find that they'd pick up a whole range of their sort of 
nutrient needs um, from the one product. And I thought, you know, it's cheap and it tastes good. good. And, you know, and it's good for you. So that, yep. that's, that's I, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Yep. Yep. And do you live by any piece of advice or, you know, have particular mottos that you go by? Um, probably not a lot of mottos that I live by. I have a couple of sayings that I really like. Does that sort of fall into the same yep. sort of category? Yep. I mean, my, my basic motto, I guess, is just, just be a good person, you know. But the sayings that I like, one of the sayings that I find most accurate is money doesn't make a person, it unmasks them. Mm-hmm. And I, I read that once in my favourite book. My favourite book is about a guy called Chuck Feeney. And uh, you may not know who Chuck Feeney is, but the book is called The Billionaire Who Wasn't. And he is a guy who made his fortune in um, duty-free goods. He was right at the start of the era of international air travel. And DFO, I'm not sure if you've ever seen a DFO store in an airport, but he was one of the, the few, there were, there were three, three owners of DFO. Um, he was always an entrepreneurial sort of fella, but he, he got into this duty-free outlet, this DFO. And uh, it basically goes, you know, it, it highlights what happened to the, uh, the other owners of DF, DFO, but with a particular focus on Chuck Feeney because he, he decided he had all of this money he was from a, a, a very modest, um, his parents were from a very modest background. And so he, he knew that he wasn't going to be able to um, uh, get rid of, he had, he had more money than he could possibly deal with. And so he looked at, well, how do I, how do I manage this situation? He said, oh, I can leave it to my family. But he'd seen uh, an environment where families had imploded when the person died. He said it was like a burden that mm-hmm. they did you know, that was then thrust upon his on his family. So he didn't want to give his money away to his family. He gave yep. them enough. Yep. They're not going to be hungry. <laughs> Let's leave it like that. Um, or he could give it away, um, you know, in his estate back to the government. But he was a businessman who hated waste and he'd seen so much governmental waste. He's, he couldn't um, bring his mind to leaving it to someone who's going to waste his money. So he, to his mind, there was really only one answer that he had, which was to give all of his money away before he died. Or at least, you know, all of the yeah. excess money that he had. So he set up a philanthropic uh, foundation called Atlantic Philanthropies. And he's very secretive, very reclusive. He doesn't like his photo being taken. But um, uh, so this this board of Atlantic Philanthropies, which which he set up, he, he gave all of his money, um, hundreds of millions of dollars to this foundation, which then gave the money away to uh, secretly to different sort of charitable organizations, educational institutes and yep. things like that. Um, and yeah, in the front of the book, you know, that quote, money doesn't make a person, it unmasks yep. them. I just think it really just mm-hmm. resonated with me. When you see money and you, and you see power, um, then you see uh, a true, a true mm-hmm. individual and in both in mm-hmm. a positive and a mm-hmm. negative sense. And the other thing, which is sort of goes against a podcast entirely, the other thing that I think, the other statement that I really love is that sometimes there's a lot to be said by not saying mm. very much. Mm-hmm. Mm, absolutely. I'm not sure if that's a good good spot to end. <laughs> no, that's that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, last question. What's your next substance that you're going to tackle? You've you've you know look looking at caffeine and and beer. Do you have another one on the agenda that you're already looking at, or you've got your sights set on? Yeah, um, well, I'm fortunate now to have had several PhD mm. students finish 
and and because of that, you get the opportunity to work um, through them, if you like. It's one of the great things about academia is that your research expands even if you're not sort of doing the work. Uh, we've got a large interest at the moment in CBD, the um, uh, cannabidiol, a non-psychoactive um, component of, of cannabis. Um, uh, and so, so I, I do feel a little bit awkward saying to people, well, I started with caffeine, we moved to alcohol, and now we're into cannabis, <laughs> as to where things are going to go next. But um, look, uh, I, I would not say that we have a particular uh, I, I did I did describe our research at one point as being um, research on legalized drug use um, with yeah, cannabis yeah. becoming legalized uh, or more liberal uh, that we could move into that space. So it's whatever the government says you're now going to be able to sort of go outside and sort of yep. make yourself feel good yep. um, on. That's that's the thing we'll hit <laughs> Watch next. Watch space. Fair enough. That's it. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, so much. Thanks so much for your time, Ben. It's been great to have a chat to you about well, thanks for inviting me. beer or beers, depending on the scenario, <laughs> and um, all the different permutations and combinations with those, and obviously the effect on on recovery, and hopefully uh, put a bit of uh, anxiety to bed. I think for a few athletes, hopefully that they can have a beer after their session. Oh, it's been lovely to chat yeah. to both of you. Thanks, thanks again. Awesome. All right, great as always to speak to Ben Desbro. Always such a wealth of knowledge. Great guy to have a chat with. I always enjoy catching up with Ben whenever we're working on something together or catching up at a conference or something like that. He's always great value. Yeah, I love his sense of humour. You like you you start to you know you think okay, yep, I'm really listening because he sounds pretty serious, and then you realise like he's having a bit of a a, a joke with you, and it yeah <laughs> keeps you on your toes. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think we've we've pretty much summarised this um, this episode already in terms of you know can I have a beer after my big training session? And the answer is you know most of the time yes, assuming that that's legal. <laughs> Obviously, if you're making sure you're of drinking age in whatever jurisdiction that you're in. Um, and for those who didn't get the reference to to getting on the beers uh, and Dan Andrews, if you go onto YouTube and look at Dan Andrews get on the beers you'll see exactly what we're talking about uh, the premier of our home state of Victoria here in Australia um, had a message for people as the first uh, sort of COVID lockdown happened early last year about not going out with your mates and getting on the beers because you might spread coronavirus mm -hmm. around and uh, yes his message got chopped up into a viral video that went along with a song which uh, then charted here in Australia so that's that's the reference if, if people aren't aware yep. of it yeah cool all right, so our next episode, uh, next week will be the the B part of this same question, so episode 11B. Steph, who have we got to discuss having a beer post-training? Mm. We have the lovely Nathan Shearer. Uh, so he is a pro triathlete uh, in the long-distance Ironman, um, triathlon events, so Ironman. Uh, and, yeah, a... Um, a good friend of mine as well and I, I know you know we we both enjoy having a beer after a training session so I thought no one better to to have a chat with Nath. Mm. And his story I think is a really interesting one we won't sort of give it away now but um, sort of comes from from other sports that have uh, you know much more of a, a beer related culture. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll chat to him for next week, but otherwise I reckon we'll let everyone um, rest up and we'll look forward to seeing them next week. Yep, so everyone can enjoy their long training session this weekend uh, with up beer if they want to, but not getting on the beers. <laughs> All right, awesome. All right. Cool, we'll sign off and we'll chat to everyone next week. See you guys.